On today's show, I'm going to be talking with Stephen Shaviro, and this is kind of special for me. Um, I first met Stephen about 27 years ago when he taught at the University of Washington. But uh, before that, he has had you know even more impressive credentials. He graduated from Yale University with a PhD. He taught film studies, amongst other things, at the University of Washington, and now teaches at Wayne University in Detroit. As if that wasn't enough, um, he's really into French philosophy, literary theory, but to keep things balanced, he also likes science fiction, music videos, David Cronenberg, and one thing that makes him very, very cool, he really likes Dean Martin. Um, if you ever find yourself in a room with him, there is no doubt he will be the smartest man in that room. That could be anywhere from Denny's to the DMV or even the teacher's lounge at Wayne University. So um, I could go on and on, but I just want to dive in because I've got so much to talk about. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks, Kelly, for that introduction. Overly gushing, but oh, I can live with it. <laughs> and I didn't even talk about the fact you've written like at least 11 books that I know of. Mm-hmm. So there's one coming out, but not for another year. Well, I'll, I'll twist your arm later on for some details of that. But, you know, I've got so many motives for wanting to do this. But one, my my little perverted motive for wanting you to be on this podcast is if you do a search, I find you in all these literary journal type things and very scholarly academic websites and blogs. And I just want after this, when someone Googles you, that they find you connected to this trashy podcast. Well, I'm happy to do it. You know, I was when I met you because I was a big fan of Heart Attack Theater all those years ago. And I like stuff like that in general. So I was going to say that kind of leads to um, what I was going to say is, you know, there's so much we can talk about today. It was really hard for me to narrow it down because literally you have so many interests. You have so much in your background. But one thing I've realized over the years, you know, even though someone can have a lot of knowledge or a lot of facts and figures, you know, instead of being overwhelmed by that at first, sometimes it's just good to start out with just a nice story that people can relate to. And I think when I read theory and things, you know, I always like it when someone can relate it to a story or humanize that philosopher or whatnot. So I'm wondering if, you know, 27 years ago, do you remember that night that we met? at 911 Media Arts in Seattle. Um, I can remember, I don't know if it's 911 or someplace else, but I can remember your questioning me about movies starring Fabio or something like that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I think I did. I did several um, film programs at 911 yeah. Media Arts. And I think um, I had a couple, but the one on Fabio is where I was trying to predict what would become the the cult films of the future. Yeah. And there was this like a VHS video of Fabio, like doing these mini romantic dramas. And mm -hmm. I said, to me, this is going to be the next cult or the next camp classic or kitsch. And I think yeah. it was pretty good. I think, I think Fabio definitely falls in that category now. Yeah. But but I think the one I'm remembering, and, and maybe you were at this one and mentioned something, but at one point I did um, a screening at 911 Media Arts, where it was a compilation of my show Heart Attack Theater. It's kind of like a best of, and then we had a Q&A. 
And I just remember yeah. at the very end, I don't even know if you talked during the program, but at the end, I think when we were like having coffee in the back, you introduced yourself. I mean, oh my God, you know, you know, I, someone actually, you know, I don't know is here, first of all, you know, when mm-hmm. you go to these events and it's most of your friends, yeah. I thought that shifty kind of look of, oh my God, does he like this? Does he hate it? You know, is he some wacko that wants me off public access TV. And instead you say, oh, I I really like your show. In fact, I I record some of the episodes. And by the way, I'm the film studies professor at the University of Washington. Well, I don't remember (laughs) our meeting that, I don't remember that instant of our meeting, but it makes sense. And uh, you know, it was true. I I don't really do it much these days, but I mean, now it's totally different with YouTube and everything. But I used to troll public access to see something which was interesting and which is not going on in major media. Um, Well, besides the ego boost, what really impressed me was that you were a university professor who actually came out to a very grassroots screening when obviously you'd have your pick of things to do. And it just, it renewed my hope that, you know, someone in academia could actually appreciate something that was very homegrown and grassroots? Well, you know, I think things have changed in academia over the years and the decades. And, you know, now and now at Wayne State University, I have graduate students who set up, you know, symposiums about comic books where they find local comics creators who self-publish their comics and have them come and talk about them. And Mm -hmm. so sort of, I mean, universities have changed, and one of the changes is that it's very, it's much less exclusive than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit, too, and and just just to uh, make sure that you're going to have fun with this, we will talk about Prince a little bit later. Okay. <laughs> I love Prince. Yeah. But when you talk about synchronicity, you know, I meet you at 911 Media Arts, and for those who don't know us, uh, Seattle, the University of Washington is in an area called the University District. And I live just a couple blocks from a campus at the time and just a couple blocks from the University Bookstore, which was an amazing bookstore in town, not just for textbooks, but for, you know, all kinds of books. Science and I sw- fiction. Science like fiction. Science fiction section. And I swear it was maybe a week after I met you. And this was just totally by coincidence. I'm there in the film section which I used to hang out, you know, and go to at least once a week. When I wasn't down the street at Bulldog News looking for mm-hmm. film-related zines. Um, but I came across your book, The Cinematic Body. And I'm looking at it, and it took a while for me to connect and look at, you know, your byline and say, oh, my God, this is that film professor I met. And so, of course, I bought it. And what struck me is, and maybe I was kind of naive at the time, you know, early 90s, but in the pre-internet era, it was really hard to find people who wrote in a scholarly way about popular culture, and especially in your scholarly way, which adds another layer of, you know, through the lens of French philosophy and, you know, in such a challenging but interesting way. But you, you know, you wrote about David Cronenberg and Andy Warhol and, you know, Fassbinder's movie of Carell. But the thing, you know, I so love was you wrote about George Romero 
and and now it's so commonplace to analyze, you know, zombie films. But well, at the time, no one was really doing what you were doing. No, I think, well, I'm actually proud of this because a couple of years ago, they came out with a book for one of the presses called Zombie Theory. And it's just articles by academics over the years about zombies and zombie movies and zombies in popular culture and so on and so forth. And um, my chapter on George Romero from all, like, all many years ago was the first thing in the book because they told me, well, this is the really first academic thing which really took zombies seriously. So, I mean, now I'm at a different university and I have a colleague whose major work is on zombies. She's written two books on zombies and is writing more. And she's seen every zombie movie, which at this point I certainly haven't. But, you know, I sort of feel happy that I seem to have been at the beginning of, you know, bringing that into dialogue and talking about it in, in this kind of way. And I don't, I mean, I think it's a, it goes both directions. It's not just that I'm trying to drag Night of the Living Dead into some highfalutin culture discourse, but I'm also trying to open up, you know, lit, thinking, interested in literature, film, and culture that there, you know, there's lots of stuff going on. It's not just on, on one level. So, you know. Well, back then, how are you perceived by your colleagues? Because you wrote, you know, which is still fairly academic, but it was, you know, presented as more of, you know, a, a mainstream, you know, film studies book. At the time, you know, were you derided at all for picking that subject matter? Well, you know, um, no, not really. I mean, thing is, things have changed that are still changing in academia, and this was kind of the be this is kind of the beginning of that change. I mean, the same basically the same year, within a year or two of my book coming out, where I talked about Romero and Cronenberg and stuff like that. Um, a book was published, which actually in academia is much more famous than mine. And, you know, it's successful enough. I recommend it. It's called Men, Women, and Chainsaws mm -hmm. by Carol Clover, who was a professor at University of California, Berkeley. And it was all about slasher movies and rape revenge movies and things like that. And she gave, you know, a theoretical thing, but also a very accessible one. And so in a, I didn't know her or didn't meet her until after that came, we, our both books came out. So with them independently, but the fact that you know those both came out around the same time shows that something was starting to happen, mm -hmm. and, and academia widening its interest and widening you know its understanding of culture was part of that. So you know, I wasn't I was really I mean I I may have done it independently, but I turned out that I was part of a wave which I didn't know was also happening with other people around me. Well, what was also going on at the time? I remember um, Camille Paglia was putting out you know, fairly scholarly books, but that were more marketed to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. I think the big one right before yours, she put out Sexual Persona. Yeah. And that really um, grabbed me and made me think a lot differently about pop culture. And, mm -hmm. and she was kind of a, the person who embraced Madonna and said, hey, you know, pop culture is a serious part of our study. Yeah, well, she's gotten, I mean, more conservative in her older age. I mean, she wrote something a couple of years ago just dissing Lady Gaga and saying Lady Gaga is no Madonna. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, as you get older, I think one of the most important things for me is to try to keep up with what younger people are doing. I mean, you know, it's really mm -hmm. like this happens a lot with music. Almost anybody my age, I'm in my 60s, your favorite music is the music from when you were in your teens and 20s. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to I try very hard to avert that by 
trying to reach out and listen and check out stuff from which younger people are find popular, which younger people are doing. And, you know, there's always good stuff. There's always terrible stuff. But, you know, it's good to try to hook into some of the good stuff that's that's going on among younger people. I mean, I, I really think it's vitality. I mean, it's, you know, I don't want to pretend I'm young when I'm not, but I also don't want to be in a closed world where, like, anything happening, the generation behind me doesn't register me. I think it's important to be engaged. In academia, is it easy to get stuck in a rut? I'm not sure. Well, okay, I, I could talk for hours about academia. A lot of it would be too much inside baseball. It would really bore most of your listeners. But basically, um, in, there are many good things about academia right now, which is a lot of it is that academia is so much more open and there's a much wider range of stuff that people are respected, are respected for working on. So, I mean, there's a lot of popular culture studies in academia today, and that's really a good thing. It just widens. I'm not against writing on any of the old stuff, but, I mean, it just it widens the range of stuff. You know, and if you're interested in the world, you should be interested in all this stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. um, on the other hand, academia is going through real financial. It's been underfinanced for years. There are very few jobs. I'm really worried. I have brilliant graduate students, and I'm worried whether they'll get a good teaching job. They won't be as lucky as I was because... When I started in academia, there were many more jobs. It was much easier to get a job. Now, you know, you have, every, you know, instead of being, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just when we, last time we hired a film person, which was a good while ago, we got like 150 applications for just one job. Mm-hmm. There certainly, when I, when I got my job at the University of Washington in 1984, there certainly wasn't anything like that kind of ratio. So your chances were much better. Mm-hmm. And I think for a mainstream university that wasn't specifically a film school, for me, just to know that the University of Washington, say, had a film studies class, you know, well, it, it seems commonplace. But back then, these well, things no, I mean, seemed there, special. There's a story about that, which you may or may not know. So the university before I came to the, I came to the University of Washington in 1984. Before I came in the early 80s, they had a really they had some really good people doing film studies classes. And they all got fired because the president of the university didn't think it was a budget, there was a budget crisis. The president of the university didn't think it was a worthwhile topic for universities to engage in. So when I came, there was one class in the book, which I, books are educationally, but the people, the very good people who had taught film studies before had all been laid off. And then basically I was part of a group of people. There were people you know, higher in the hierarchy and more powerful than me we were all sort of waiting for this president to retire so that he'd be replaced by another president who'd be more open to what was happening. And that's what eventually happened. So once that president retired, there was a new president of the university. We proposed the film studies program. We went through all the bureaucratic hoops. We got it started. But, you know, mm-hmm. it was kind of, I mean, now it's so much taken for, well, now it's more taken for granted, but still, Film, I mean, film studies is booming relatively in academia, but except that academia as a whole has, has budget cuts and money, less jobs. But, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. things have really changed. Well, I was at the University of Washington a couple of years before you started teaching there. And um, one of my favorite classes I took was on American popular music. And again, yeah. at the time, it was like, oh, this sounds cool. You know, at the time, it seemed like one of those you know, they used to joke about, oh, basket weaving, like the easy, yeah, fun yeah. classes. And I think a lot of people perceived it as yeah. that. But when you went film into it, I go. They said, film class, yeah. they say, oh, it's like getting credit for eating popcorn. Ha, ha, you know. Right. 
But boy, the guy who taught it was great. And we, you know, had a great survey from, I think, back, you know, Tin Pan Alley, you know, mm -hmm. the early 1900s up to the present. And I yeah. thought, this is such an engaging way to learn something. And I, I don't know if, you, if that was still, you know, a class when you were teaching there, but it seems like there was a turning of the tide in the 80s when popular yes. culture was being taken more seriously. That, that is right. I mean, that's and that's still true of English departments and humanities departments today. But as I said, except the entire, I mean, the entire university has underfunded humanities for the last 10 or 15 years. But that was after humanities changed and became more open to a wider way of things. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, what I really want to concentrate on today is to talk about how we can review and analyze popular culture and especially horror and cult cinema, but pop culture in general, but from an intellectual angle. You know, we live in an era with instant, you know, access through blogging, podcasting, you know, YouTube yeah. reviewers. There's such an open platform to anyone to talk about this. And I really want to know if, you know, there's a danger. I mean, on the one hand, it's great that we all can share our opinions, but on the other hand, are we losing out by not having more educated people talking? Well, I wouldn't, hmm, that's an interesting question. I wouldn't put it in terms of education. I might actually put it in terms of money, okay? Because we've had a, we have a much wider range of voices out now online than we ever had before in terms of, you know, talking about movies and pop music and things like that. But we also less of those people are actually getting paid. And so they have to do it as amateurs. They, they can't. I mean, it used to be that I'm not even talking about not talking about academia here, but things like journalism. They're like really brilliant film reviewers who have worked for various newspapers, journals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of those jobs have disappeared as, you know, media have changed and, mm -hmm. you know, and they laid off people that are paying because they figured they could get somebody else to do it for free online. And so, there's a real problem, which people, I mean, people, some people are managing, but they have to kind of hustle a lot, a lot more. I mean, yeah, I know several it, yeah. people who I actually, through Patreon or whatever, I, I actually pay every month, not much, like a few dollars just to support writers I really like, so they can talk about whatever various culture things. But mm -hmm. it's still not as, I mean, money, is, you have to hustle much more, it's much mm -hmm. harder, there are less jobs open, which will be well-painting. All these people used to write for the Village Voice in New York, and they all got fired because now, and the Village Voice eventually closed down too. But you know, there's a difference when you find yourself having to just put up your stuff for love online, which is great, except when you need, you know, you need to get paid, and you know, a day mm -hmm. job can interfere with that, with your ability to write that kind of stuff. Well, on Patreon, the only one I've been tempted to pay for is Brett Easton Ellis's podcast. Yeah, and, I haven't. Go ahead. And I was just going to say what I like about it is he interviews people, but sometimes he just talks on a subject by himself. And what I really like, instead of like, you know, rambling, he seems like he has everything scripted, although it's not a forced delivery. Yeah. Like, it's to hear someone who's really taken time to write a well thought out essay. I have mixed feelings about, I haven't heard his podcast. I have mixed feelings about him because I think he's really smart and I think his novels are really good and underrated but he's also seems to become kind of an asshole in recent years <laughs> and that disappoints me oh dear that oh boy but you I see mean, i don't want i mean i shouldn't be saying things like this in public but you know 
and he's somebody whose fiction I greatly admire, but I'm kind of, you know, mm-hmm. I don't well, know. Well, he's got very strong opinions. Yeah. And at least with someone like that, at least if someone's not being wishy-washy, you know, they just come out and they're just very, you know, blatant about where they stand. At least you can love it or hate it. Yeah. Well, I said but, I used to love it, but now I'm more hating it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, who knows? Um, but I, I hear what you say about the paying, because I think what happens now, a lot of people, I think, trust the average uh, person who's just leaving their own review, say, on IMDb or Amazon, yeah. because they think, oh, this is a person just like me. I'm going to take their recommendation over a paid reviewer who might have, you know, a corporate interest to give it a thumbs up. Well, there's a, some truth to that, but there's also problems, which is like gaming the system. It's like these right wing talk show, you know, hosts who, you know, this happened to actual friends of mine that they wrote something sort of left leaning on Twitter and they start getting thousands of, you know, death threats and shit like that. I mean, it's really yeah. atrocious the way, yeah. you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, I mean, I don't know. It very, you know, I, I earn my living as a professor, so, you know, there's a continuity between what I'd write as part of what's expected of me for research and stuff which I just put online, like on my blog or something like that. But I don't know. I do a lot. I read, spend a lot of time reading science fiction novels and I sometimes mm-hmm. write about them. And put it, And it, I'll, I'll say it, it gratifies me when the author of the novel says, yeah, this is a thank you for this review. You, you got what I was trying to do. And it upsets me when the science fiction writer says, who is this person? They don't understand me at all. And both have happened to me, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I was reading in an interview with you, you said something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, that the reviewer should somehow like reflect the, the creator's intent. Not, I'm not sure I'd say, I don't know what reviewer to write. I wouldn't, this, I mean, there are often things in works which the creator might not have even, I mean, this happens to me in my writings, even American, the people say, oh, Shavero said blah, blah, blah. And I said, what? I didn't realize I was saying that, but very often, oh, cool. You know, I think when you create something, I mean, this applies for me even for just like critical writing, but I think it's all the more true for creator that more comes out than you put into it if it really works and mm-hmm. you find out, you know, stuff comes out which you might not have intended to begin with. I mean, mm-hmm. there are different, some artists are much more conscious of what they're doing and some are much more, are much less so. So it really, it, it varies, but you know, I don't know. People like, you know, I, people when I've, on the rare occasions I've gotten talked to, them, people like science fiction authors and music video directors are always, are almost always really interesting people to talk to, not just about their own work, but in general. So, mm-hmm. because I think they're creative people, but again, it varies from case to case. Now, do you remember what year Wes Craven's movie Scream came out? Sometime in the 90s, mid 90s, I'd say. I don't remember exactly, but yeah. So to me, that was the turning point, not just for, you know, critiquing horror movies, but a lot of pop culture in general. You know, it was the whole, you know, idea of the self-aware movie, you know, the characters in the movie being aware of the conventions of that genre. Yeah. And, And I think it's when people started using this word, which for some reason I have such an aversion to. It's it's trope. You know, before yeah. then, nobody talked about tropes. That was something that, yeah. leave that, you know, to well, the literary scholars. scholars. Yeah. yeah, literary tropes. and But now everyone thinks, you know, they're an expert, you know, because they use the word trope or, oh, I discovered a trope. 
Well, that's mm-hmm. a starting point, but yeah. I think it kind of got to a point where it was really clever in Scream. I mean, it was a very clever screenplay, but then it affected horror movies in general after that, not just yeah. that they were uh, making fun of the genre, but that there was this self-awareness to it, which I think yeah. took away some of the charm. That Well, I, I have actually have theory. I've thought about this a lot. I have, theory, have some theories about it, so... Um, one is that, yeah, when you see like an old thing, which is really, you know, the classic example is Ed Wood, Plan 9 from Outer Space and Leonard Glenda, where this poor guy was really just trying his best, but he was kind of had no resources and was kind of nuts. And so this stuff comes out as totally weird and wonderful. But when people deliberately try to say, I'm going to make a film like that, which is so bad it's good and which has all these weird things, the very fact that they're calculating it and they're not doing it naively often makes it not quite as good. So mm-hmm. that's one thing. But the other thing is that there are different degrees of self-consciousness. I mean, since you mentioned Scream, I mean, the whole, I'm very, I'm interested in, there's lots of, I mean, slasher films are very interesting. I had a graduate student of mine wrote a great dissertation about sort of queer figures in slasher films, which I can't summarize, but he just saw all these films, including very obscure ones that had really smart things to say about them. But anyway, if you look at the history of slasher films, I mean, it, in a certain sense, it's like invented by Alfred Hitchcock in Psycho. Okay, I mean, mm-hmm. he really invented a whole new genre. It took a while for people to imitate that, but then, you know, what really consolidated the slasher film and made it into a big, funny genre was, and this is like almost seven, 15 or 20 years after Psycho, was Halloween, John Carpenter's mm-hmm. first Halloween film. And then that was so, it's so successful and stirred, you know, made money box office and stirred people's imaginations that they had all kinds of sequels and imitations. So you had Halloween sequels, you had other mass killers like, you know, you know, I'm not even remembering the names of all the movies, you had all these things and there was a whole cycle of them and some people just mm-hmm. did lame versions of them, some people actually tried to do clever and subversive things with them, but again, you're right, after a while it becomes so, the market becomes so saturated, it becomes self-conscious and you can't not be, you can't do it naively anymore. And so that's when you get in the mid-90s when Rescue from the Scream series, and there are other films imitating that as well as sequels. And that's, you know, where you have a kind of tongue-in-cheek postmodern attitude that, okay, here's a here's a scary horror film but with a slasher, but also everybody in the movie knows that they're in a scary horror film with a slasher and knows how these movies work, how these movies work. So mm-hmm. I think you're right. I mean, there's some really good movies, like First Scream is really good, and there's some other really good movies like that, but there's a danger that becoming so self-aware and self-conscious can can hurt them, but that's not the last stage. I mean, what happens is that finally after a while, even that gets worn out and you have to figure out what to do next. Since now not only can you make, can't you make a straight slasher film anymore, you can't even make a, a tongue-in-cheek slasher film anymore because it's been done too many times. And so I think some of the most interesting films, more or less in that genre in the past decade, have invented, have rethought and said, what do we do next? Now we can't just be so self-aware and self-conscious. What else can we do? Okay, so I there's several films in the past decade or so, which I think have tried to think about that question. One is Cabin in the Woods. Probably the most famous one is Cabin in the Woods, which mm-hmm. um, again, it's like self-conscious in this way, but it's on a meta level because it turns out these teenagers are just going to the cabin for a weekend and they're being manipulated in all kinds of sneaky ways by these scientists who 
are going to have them, you know, them get into a horror situation, they'll be killed to appease the elder guards or whatever. And it even has a choose your own adventure. They go down to the basement and there are all these 20 or 30 different things and which one they choose will tell which subgenre of horror it is and so and stuff like that. And then, you know, you have things like the one girl who's as far as the end is the final girl, um, isn't a virgin because no kids this age are anymore, but she's like relatively close to it because she hasn't been doing, you know, the kind of slutty stuff other kids have been doing and stuff. And, you know, and so you, you all have this kind of hyper self. So you have that transmutes into something else. A second example is Unfriended, which now itself has been imitated too many times. But Unfriended, the mm -hmm. first Unfriended, which is like 2014, it's all about, it's not only all about the internet, it all takes place on a, on a Macintosh screen. So if you watch the movie yourself on your own laptop, you're watching a movie where the movie screen becomes a laptop and where you see all the apps you're used to and clicking on these different things, and it's still, but it's still ultimately a slasher film. Um, behind that. So that's another way of doing it. And then the third one, which is less well-known, but is actually my favorite. I mean, I should ask you, have you ever seen this film? It's called Detention, directed by Joseph Kahn, who's a music, mostly known as a music video director from 2011. No, but I'm going to put it on my to-watch list. It's, uh, you know, for me, it's one of the most important films of the 21st century. Um, you know, I know that's extravagant, but it's, what is it? It's, it's a mashup of like 25 different genres. It's a, it's a, it, it's a, it's a teen high school comedy. It's also a teen emo high school thing, you know, like Breakfast Club. It's also a slasher film. It's also a parody, parody of a slasher film. It's also, you know, then there are elements of everything from the fly to Freaky Friday just thrown in just, you know, to make sure it's as stuffed as possible. And it's this whole film where, you know, it sort of says, well, you know, any genre you do, as already too familiar, so you sort of do this incredible hyper mashup of all the genres, which you kind of comment on themselves in in these multiple ways. I don't know how to. Well, well does that it. speak to how technology has changed people's artistic mindset? If you have the technology to sample music for a generation yes. well, and I mean, also, cut and paste. Well, um, detention is also a time travel film among the many multiple genres. And so it used a joke, which is subsequently used in several other, several other slasher movies, which is somebody comes from the present back to like the 1990s, but they have their cell phone with them, but it won't work because they can't get a signal in 1995. And, other <laughs> people can then say, and they say, well, this is a phone. This is not on a phone. It's a computer. You can do all these things. And I'm like, come on, don't be ridiculous. Nothing like that can exist. Computers are these gigantic things. So, you know, I mean, that's just one. It, sound, it, it sounds fun. Um, see, the thing is, I like that you like that because oh. that shows you're trying to embrace the new. And I think I'm guilty of sometimes, even though you know I'm a little, just a few years younger than you, I'm kind of stuck, you know, in, in an era where I think, oh, this is my favorite, and I'm not as open to new things like that. Well, you so, know, there nobody's completely open. I mean, it's always as you get older, it always gets harder. I just encourage, you know, more openness. I'm sure there are things I, there are things, you know, there are things which younger people like, which I. Which I convinced are great. There are other things you can do love, which I just don't see it. I mean, I don't know. I just why are they into? I, I, I mean, I have, you know, I'm I'm enough of an you know old geezer that I say, oh, kids today, oh, you know. I mean, I can't. I try to avoid that, but there's some mm -hmm. things I just don't get. So obviously, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's all a matter of degree. Well, if you like horror, it's 
it's easy to get stuck with, oh, I love Freddy Krueger and I love Jason, and not mm-hmm. being open to what are the new monsters. But that brings me to something um, about horror and genre films in general. Yeah, I like when people push the genre, but to me, the whole purpose of a genre is to give your audience the elements that they love. And if you get too arty and don't give them those elements just to show how clever you are, you've kind of cheated them. Because at that point, then why even say that's a horror movie Mm -hmm. if you're so far away from what your fans want? Well, I'm with you in part on that. But I think, as I I mean, this is something I always talk about to my film students about genre. This is, it goes both ways. Because on the one hand, if you... If you're expecting a genre and it's something totally different, you know, you're talking about ultra arty films, but I mean, if you really want to see a horror film and it's a kind of light, frothy rom-com, you're probably pissed off. And the inverse is true. If you really want to see a light, frothy rom-com and instead it's a really gory, disgusting horror film, you're probably upset also. But the other thing works, I mean, you can go to a movie and say, shit, I've just seen this so many times before. It's not doing anything new. It's just going through the same formula. So Mm -hmm. I think for... And this is for the whole history of the film genres in the 20th century into the 21st. The question is always, how do I get a balance between giving these familiar things and on the one hand, and on the other hand, doing something new with it so that giving it another twist, giving it something clever or different so that people won't just feel, oh, I'm seeing the same old stuff all over again. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult, but that's like, it's a balance that goes in both directions. And that's, and, and that's what they trick really is and the thing when i when i'm delighted by new films and stuff like that is partly because i mean i don't make films partly because i could never think of stuff like that but you know when i see something where somebody you know adhered to the genre but also got a really smart and interesting and weird new twist which i never would have thought of on my own i say that's what i love you know Mm -hmm. so it's, it's it's a balance between the two directions that's important for me well i think horror films have always tackled you know um cultural issues sometimes very subtly but sometimes more overtly i think today it's being more overtly but i think you know the current crop of filmmakers have to realize well you may be wearing that more on your sleeve but they've always done that you're just kind Mm -hmm. of leading with that yeah well again it's a matter of it's a matter of degree i mean you know to think of um, you know, some films do it more, some films do it less. I mean, and some, I mean, I'm trying to think of examples, which I'm, which are on my mind's blanking on at the, at the moment, but you know, there, again, I see that as really a matter of degree. Like Jordan Peele, um, yeah, that's an example. I mean, Get Out was very upfront with its politics and it was a great, totally mm-hmm. great film. His second, his next film, Us, is a bit more subtle because it's creepy, it's not as, it's about a black family and a white family, but it's not exclusively about race in the same way that Get Out was, but it's still Mm -hmm. very creepy and works really well, and it's still addressing some of the same issues, many of the same issues. So I think, again, interesting creators are always negotiating these things back and forth, is what I'd say. Well, I think another another, uh, interesting example is the recent Invisible Man, which had, yeah. you know, I, very much... I even still haven't seen it, but go, but okay. yeah, well, the big go thing ahead is, anyway. you know, well, it's about, you know, an abusive relationship and a woman, you know, fleeing that and then a man using this technology to torment her. Yeah. And the thing about that is 
you know, horrors, you know, in many, you know, classic horror films have, you know, used the theme of, you know, woman being, you know, uh, being yeah. treated badly by a man. But this one, I think, it did it in a way that was topical because it talks about, mm-hmm. you know, sort of narcissistic abuse and yeah. gaslighting, and yeah. which I think was a really fresh way to do it. Then the purists say, well, this was never in, you know, H.G. Wells' book. But the whole point is, you know, a movie that's been remade that many times, of course you can freshen it up for a modern audience. Well, that's what I was saying before. I think there's a continuum between familiarity and innovation. If you go too far in either direction, it'll turn people off. But if you hit a sweet spot, it has enough familiarity to hook you in, but it doesn't have so much that you say, oh, this is just the same old stuff all over again. Right. Whereas I think a lot of, you know, purists, they see a movie like Friday the 13th and think, oh, that's stripped of all politics. That's just a pure blood fest. And maybe it is, but even that had its own thing at the time of, you know, the the virgin surviving to the end, yeah. the kids who have sex die early. It's still making a moral judgment. Yeah. Well, again, I think a lot of movies, I mean, they're also cycles. I mean... In the early 2000s, there was the Saw films mm-hmm. and the Hostel films, which were really kind of gross. I mean, they really just had explicit, disgusting things on screen. And then you sort of had to move away from that to things like Paranormal Activity, which is one series now concluded, but I've seen all six of them. And I, I love the whole series, Paranormal Activity, in which, you know, it's the opposite. It's almost nothing happens. And you get almost hypnotically waiting for something to happen. And... And the dread of waiting because you know something's going to happen, you don't know when or where or what, is what makes them really work. It's interesting you say that. So, what else do you like about them? Because it's definitely not about the art direction or the clever well, camera movement. But I mean, it is in a certain way because the other thing. I mean, I wrote, I published an article about the paranormal activity films. One of the things they're doing, which is really, I think, is really great, is that the technology used to make the movies the same as the technology depicted within the movie. Mm-hmm. And so like the first one has people, you know, webcams on laptops. The second one, the guy puts in surveillance cams all around the house. The third one is a prequel. It goes back to a year earlier, so it's all VHS. The fourth one then has, you know, Microsoft Connect and stuff like that. So, I mean, and in each case, it's really, I mean, you know, we have a story which is given to us in skeletal forms about these demons and a past, but the demons are really inhabiting the technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's sort of like, you know, you just, you know, in there, there are sequences in some of those films where you see it's middle of the night, and you're just waiting for something to happen, and you just, there's like five cameras, and you go sequence one to two to three to four to five, back to one to two to three to four to five, or the camera's going back and forth. I mean, there's in the third one, which is VHS, the guy t- t- takes that rotating fan and puts the VHS camera on the fan so it goes back and forth. And so it's almost like an avant-garde formalist film in terms of it just sort of at a fixed rate going back and forth. On this side, it shows the living room. On this side, it shows the kitchen. And, but that's used as a setup for these totally shocking things to happen at certain moments, and it's brilliant. It sort of puts you in that fight-or-flight mode. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, they're, you know, so I think those films are brilliant both because they're masterfully used, the whole thing of having to wait, which is, I mean, there's always been different modes of horror, shocking with what you see, and shocking you with what you can't see and what you might hear, what you might vaguely know, and which, but you have to wait for it because you know it's going to come. And you know, and it combines that with this, you know, brilliant comment on the technology it's using. 
I like how you mentioned that it's shot in the format that it's portraying, you know, the yeah. video surveillance. One thing that always brings me out of a movie, you know, nice movie shot on film. And then there's a scene where they're watching a video someone took. And when they play that video, they're showing it, you know, like they really shot it on VHS and they're mm-hmm. using that in the movie. And it's kind of like they don't realize they've already established a film world you know, with that resolution. So within that world, it doesn't look realistic, even though that it's supposed to be a VHS tape. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I don't know that those things tend, I mean, I I, I guess I like those better than you do. A lot of those things actually do tend to work for me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I mean, I think, you know, out of the trance. No, they, they sort of make me more kind of, I, I mean, this, again, I have a fear with this and I, you know, when I teach, I often give my students a whole kind of timeline of media because, you know, everybody takes for granted what they grew up with and it's hard to realize something. So, I mean, I tell my students, you know, I I give them a history of media going back to photography and telegraph in the 1830s up to, you know, the phonograph, Edison's phonograph and then first movie in 1895 and so on. Introduction of sound, introduction, you know, television, introduction of color, you know, introduction of the internet and, but, I mean, the way I vividly show it to my students is, okay, so my mother was born in 1927, the exact same year when they first added sound to movies. I was born in 1954, and that was the same year that my parents bought their first television set. TV exists since the late 40s, but the Mm mid-50s around when I was born is when it became in everybody's household in America. Mm -hmm. And my kids were born, you know, into a world where everybody used the internet all the time, and so they were, you know, using the internet when they were three years old, you know? So, so those are landmarks. And then 81 MTV came about. And then, well, what was it like 91 or 92 when AOL home internet hit? Yes. I mean, there, there were all these things and, you know, I mean, I, there are other things. I mean, I remember the first time I saw a cash, an ATM, a cash machine. I remember, you know, I lived in a world where you had to go to the bank to get your money out, you know, during banking hours. Do you remember when you saw your first scanner at a grocery store? No, I don't. But I know that it didn't, they didn't exist in the old days, but I don't know when I saw the first one. I don't remember Probably that. late 70s, maybe? That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. But anyway, just, just to be aware of that, I mean, and people very often tend to think anything they grew up with from their kids existed forever, and anything which was introduced when they were adults were like newfangled inventions. But, you know, this is a history which is ever since, I mean, it started with, with electronic inventions in the early 19th century and you know it's just mm-hmm. accelerated ever since well along those lines there was something it's kind of the buzzword a few years back especially when youtube came and people started telling stories in web series and they're thinking oh yeah. there's a whole new format and i think at one point it was like new media or transmedia yeah. were saying hey we'll you know we'll have a movie but we'll do a crossover and do a mini youtube series that's related yeah. But um, do you remember when Marble Hornets was the buzz? No, I don't remember that one. Because that was a made-for-YouTube series, and it basically has a big cult following, and it was about these young filmmakers who were making a film. And you so you see kind of, you know, this parts of the making the film, but the other yeah. part of the story is someone gets all those old tapes after the fact of yeah. the filmmaker. So it's kind of like someone watching someone else's tapes and then they're discovering these weird clues and kind of spooky things within and 
I kind of resisted it, maybe because, you know, now I'm too old for that. Maybe I wasn't the right yeah. demographic, but mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'm going to watch it with an open mind. And you know what? It had some effective moments. And I believe this is either high eight or regular VHS. Yeah. But I think that also came hand in hand with maybe 10 or so years ago when the new generation was embracing the flaws and the glitches of VHS. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But again, I mean, again, a lot of so I mean, the history of technology changing both means sometimes old technologies are superseded and because by the newer ones, but also sometimes people realize, oh, you can do something interesting by going back to the old one. I mean, when I teach film class, when I teach film classes, you know, a lot of students complain about the older films being in black and white instead of color. And Mm -hmm. all I try to point out is that, you know, with either black and white and color, you're doing, I mean, now very few films are in black and white as always for a very specific artistic purpose. But, you know, if you look at any film, you have to ask, how are they using the black and white if it was from the black and white days? And how are they using the color if it's a more recent film? And that Mm -hmm. is, that's also, that's always really can be used in different ways. Well, well, let's talk about venue. Because I know when um, the Paranormal Activity movie came out, they had these ads on TV showing just the audience's reaction to the movie, which was great. But now if you think of, okay, people watching on their laptops, people watching on their phone, but if you're, you know, watching it on your phone late at night in the dark, that's one thing. But if you're doing it on the bus or, you know, with people around, much different. And I think it was so great when we just were able to watch something in a theater with no distractions. You know, we're not checking our phone during it. But I also think we've also missed out on the drive-in movie theater, which was a great place to see slasher movies. And then Mm -hmm. even the grind houses are just the rundown kind of scary theaters where you felt like anything could happen there. Well, you know, I mean, all I can say is that these things, again, when technology, I mean, Again, I, since I do a lot of this sort of history, film history of Hollywood, you know, Hollywood went into a crisis in the 1950s, and there are many reasons, but one of the reasons was that, you know, people went to the movies a lot more before television was was existed. And, you know, the, you'd go to the movies on Saturday and you'd have a whole series. You'd have an A picture, a B picture, you'd have cartoons, you'd have, ser- you know, serials, which is a new episode every week. You'd have newsreels, all that kind of stuff. And obviously, a lot of that stopped because people get a lot of that on TV. So, I mean, I know I always feel, yeah, I mean, wistful about older forms when they were enjoyable. But I always try to think, you know, what can what what are the new possibilities? I mean, well, back in the day, the dream was, you know, cable with 100 channels. Now it's, you know, beyond just Netflix, which is kind of its own, you know, hundreds of channels every, you know, category has so many movies well you know there's i mean again a lot of this is tied up i keep on saying this but it's tied up with economics what is what what how much does it cost i mean lots of people download movies illicitly for free and you know on but then the other hand you know i so i have a netflix subscription i have an amazon prime subscription i have an hbo max subscription i have a um what disney i guess my daughter got a disney subscription i mean they're just and then each one's another like 10 or 15 dollars you have to pay every month and so it gets but i mean that's why i got rid of cable because i used to have cable mm-hmm. to buy 100 channels it was way too expensive and i realized 90 percent of this i can get online so i got rid of the cable but now i watch everything online but now they're starting to charge for more things online which you used to be able to see 
just for your general thing. So, do you think people value this content as much since it's so plentiful? Well, there's always been that problem, and I think again, it may be boring to say that, but I think it goes both ways. I understand people say, well, you know, when it's harder to see something, you'd value it more because it was so hard to get to see it. And yeah, that's kind of true, but there are other things where it's really good that you can actually, you know, it's sort of like with music or with, I mean, music videos is a good example because, I mean, that's something I've been writing about and studying, but like music videos, I, I, I remember when MTV came on in 1981 and I started watching it. But so, you know, there's a whole thing with music videos where you might want to see a certain video you'd heard something about, but you'd have to like watch for three hours until they actually played it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then MTV and other stations stopped playing as much music videos. They, instead of being on any time, they'd be only on certain programs certain hours, and it'd be hard to see. And then for a while, they were actually putting out music videos on DVDs. And then 2005 is when YouTube started. And so for the last 15 years, everything's available there. And in a way, it's, you know, in a way, you might not, you know, I won't see random things, which I did because I had to just watch MTV until what I wanted to see came on. So I'd see these other things. But on the other hand, it's great that I, if I want to see so-and-so's video, new video, I can just see it. I don't have to wait for five hours for it to show up or something. Mm -hmm. So well, there are well, pluses and minuses to all these changes, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, before we wrap up, and we do have a little more to talk about, I want to wrap up with some yeah. talk about exploitation film and how Hollywood has totally appropriated every last bit of mm -hmm. the fun, trashy movies that we used to cherish. Not, not always in a bad way. Yeah. But um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about your love of music videos and how you're teaching it and how you wrote about that in one of your last books. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Music videos are just a really interesting art form for various reasons. And it's also one which oddly seems to be understudied in academia, even though academia is open to popular culture in so many different ways. And, okay, why is... I mean, there are various, well, there are various reasons. One thing is the history. I mean, you go into the prehistory of, you know, clips on TV and video jukeboxes, and you have MTV in 1981, then you have, you know, the, the change in format from being on TV to being on the internet, which we have had since, as I said, since 2005. You've also had changes in technology from shooting them on film to shooting them on, on video. Um, but you also have the fact that music videos, part of what I love about music videos is they're often very impure, like they have so many, you know, if you're making a music video and you're a direct music video director, you know, you have to consider what the art, what the musical artist knew, needs. You also might have to consider um, what the record company wants, which will be different from what the artists themselves want. And you also have to consider, you know, product placement to help finance it. I mean, there are all these different, there are all these different things pulling. And then, you know, a lot of music videos are meta commentaries. So you have music videos which sort of recreate scenes from beloved old movies or you have music videos which you know go which have fashion designers and use you know new high fashion or you have music videos which parody tele, television commercials or whatever I mean it's just there's like so much going on it's kind of dizzying and and I, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of great and then also I mean it's not true that all music videos are but they talk about MTV editing this really rapid editing style but music videos actually you know in a way, they're more interesting than when the same rapid editing style is used in like action movies, because the action movies they have to worry about telling a story, and some music videos tell stories. They often don't have to worry about telling a story. So you can do other things. You can, you know, 
I mean, music itself, the lyrics might tell a story or they might just express a mood. Music usually has different passages, like there's a verse and chorus, and there's another chorus, verse another chorus, and there's a bridge, and there's a return to the final chorus. And you can do visual things which relate to that in kind of interesting ways. In a movie, you'd feel confused if you saw the same character in different clothes, you know, back and forth among different shots. But in music videos, we've taken for granted that the artist might be wearing five different costumes in five different locations, and you keep on switching back and forth between them. It's nonlinear in a really interesting way, which has to do with the way that music is nonlinear because we have choruses and verses and repetitions and transformations and all that kind of stuff. So there's just a lot of beautiful stuff going on in music videos, and it expresses lots of moods. And I don't know, I mean, really hardcore music people don't like videos because they say you should listen to the music as music. And I understand that, but I, you know, I don't have much musical training and I really don't know. Part of the reason I started writing music videos is because I didn't know how to write about pop music. But since I know about movies, I could write about music videos and be writing about the pop music, but also writing about cinematic aspects. And so again, it's messy and combines a lot of different things. And that's what's great about it. Mm-hmm. Now, I think even before you uh, wrote that, in your book, Post-Cinematic Effect, which came out yeah. in 2010, was that the book where you wrote about Grace Jones? And, yes. And what was it, but, Corporate Cannibal? Yeah, I wrote about that video. But I mean, even before that, I was publishing their articles, which I publish in academic journals or online, which aren't necessarily in my books. I mean, I started writing about my first two music video articles. There was one about Bjork, and there was one about Missy Elliott. And then I just went on to write about other, you know, music video things. So I have, like, besides that whole book, I have lots of articles about different music videos, which I've published in different places. Do you think people underestimate the impact of music videos? Because one thing YouTube does that we couldn't do back in the 80s, I mean, there's hit counters. And when you yeah. see a video that's had a billion or more views, yes. that's that's some major impact. No, I mean, well, there's, there's that, and also people talking about the videos. I mean, it used to be that they, that again, what made impact was if they were on television, but now it's kind of views on, you know, I mean, there are, there are music videos which have a wide cultural, there are these which are just, you know, which, which are just music videos and fans of the music watch them. But there are other music videos which have wide, you know, cultural and social impacts. I mean, most recently, you know, WAP or WAP, the, you know, Cardi B, Cardi B and Megan the Stallion, you know, everybody was talking about it, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. you know, making it, it's, it's doing stuff. I mean, it's very sexual. It's very much saying women influence sex. It's not just a guy thing and we can do it for ourselves, you know, and, and but I mean, then before that, like, this is America, the, you know, a couple of years ago, Charles Gambino was was a big thing. Everybody was talking about it again because it had a major cultural impact and major commentary. So there are things like that. I mean, there are also, I don't know, some of the stuff Beyonce does. Beyonce has a major impact whenever she does anything, though she usually keeps it on, she usually keeps her things on the, like, the last video movie with all the songs in the album made videos was on Disney and the one before was also on the streaming services. But nonetheless, you know, so there are artists who make impacts, big public impacts. And so that's another thing. There are also, I mean, there, there are a lot of musicians who got attention from me and from other people first because of their videos. And their music is really interesting in itself. Sort of doing these interesting videos at the same time really were kind of challenging and thought-provoking, even if they weren't mass popular. 
I think of somebody like FK Twigs as an example of that, for instance. What do you think of the film directors who got their start in music videos? Do you think they work well because they learn visual storytelling through that? Well, it's not partly. It's, I mean, a lot of music video directors, when I've read interviews with them or in a few cases when I actually got to interview them, Arts, they all want to, you know, do feature films and stuff like that as well, which is understandable because it's working on a much bigger canvas, a bigger scale. But some of them, you know, some of that, there's some people like David Fincher who started out making videos for Madonna and other big artists. And when he right. became, he's now one of America's, you know, most famous film directors and he hasn't done music videos in a long time. But then there's other people like Michel Gondry who started out in the 80s and 90s making incredible music videos, then became a big Hollywood director, but he still makes music videos now and again when he's mm -hmm. a friend of his or when he feels in the mood or whatever. And I like when they keep their hands in it. They're among younger generations. I mentioned that film, Detention by Joseph Kahn. Joseph Kahn is basically makes music video directors. He's worked with big names, everybody from Eminem to Britney Spears to Taylor Swift. But he, he made a one movie in Hollywood and it was an unhappy experience. So he decided he only make movies when he could have paid for it himself. And oh, wow. so, like, so like he worked for five, He's only made two movies in the last decade, but in each case, he'd like work for five years making as many music videos and commercial TV commercials as he could, and then use the profits to fund, self-fund the movie so he'd have final cut and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then there are other people who do projects and some are more successful, some are, you know, Hype Williams is one of the best music video directors for the last 20, 25 years. He made one movie, Belly which came out about 1998 or 99. And it's actually a really mm -hmm. interesting movie, but it didn't do well in the box office. So he went back to making videos because he was having trouble getting funding with more movies. So, I mean, it really varies, but mm -hmm. I think there's, there is interesting interplay. I mean, part of the thing about music videos is that because you don't have to tell a story in the same way, you don't have to worry about continuity editing in the same way. And that liberates you to do all kinds of weirder things visually, I think. I'm thinking of this one director who's very prolific. He did like Lady Gaga, I think, Telephone and yeah. Madonna's Jonas Ray of Light. Yes, and I, he is so visually stunning and is yeah. so successful. But he finally directed a movie. He did um, the adaptation of the book Lords of Chaos about yeah. I think the Norwegian death metal or black yeah. metal. And you know what? I have very mixed feelings. I mean, I, I didn't wouldn't throw it out, you know, totally. But I thought yeah. for someone who was so visually stunning in his music videos, this movie really didn't leave, you know, didn't yeah, have much no, impact I mean, that's, for that's, me. That's, that sometimes happens that they just go much, they feel that because they're telling a story, they have to play it more straight. I mean, you know, yeah. Ackerlund actually made three or four movies. I haven't seen all of them, but he made one good movie. It's called Sprung, I think. It's just this like hilarious satirical movie about speed addicts, about a speed addict. No, oh, okay. messes up his whole life because he's because he's an addict. And it, but it's like deadpan where it's really hilarious, and that was pretty good. But yeah, a lot of you know, he's another example of somebody who seems to do better in the short form and hasn't been as that as successful in, in longer films. And there are other examples of that. I think a lot of it again has to do that they just. They, they feel they need to play it straight, so they kind of clamp down on their wild visual imagination so the movie be coherent. I mean, it's sort of like it's a five-minute video. It doesn't have to be coherent in those terms because the, move, the music and the artists being in the whole thing make it coherent. But when you have a two-hour, an hour-and-a-half movie, then you have to worry about a lot more, and that sort of 
triples what you can do visually and stuff. Okay. We could also argue Madonna does the same thing for herself. She's very effective in a three-minute music video. Mm-hmm. She struggles sustaining a whole movie as an actress. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that that's true. Again, I don't know. It's the question of when she's in a movie, how much power does she have? I mean, in a music video. I mean, I'm very interested in music video directors who do really smart, interesting, good stuff and for different musicians. But, um, you know, you can't just, you know, it's rare that you just make a music video the musician doesn't want. So there's always, I mean, it's always collaborative. And I, you know, I like collaboration. I think it often brings out things which one individual might not have gotten by themselves. Well, before we dive into exploitation (laughs) or the death of exploitation, I just want you to give a brief rundown. Uh, you were in Seattle in the late 80s, early 90s, when a big cultural revolution was going on, you know, with the grunge yeah. music scene. And you were kind of, you know, at the epicenter, the university district, and there was Capitol yeah. Hill and downtown. But, you know, that was kind of like the world was looking at us at that time. And I just want to know, you know, what you felt at that time and what your well, experiences were. Well, I mean, it's kind of... You know, I wasn't really, I wasn't at the center because I didn't like know the band people or the people really centrally involved. But I was certainly, I certainly went to a lot of concerts and I was an observer of it. And I don't know. I mean, it was, I get the impression that a lot of the grand Jesus himself were kind of puzzled. Like, why, you know, we're doing this stuff because we like it. And all of a sudden, you know, we're wearing flannel shirts because that's kind of the stuff we sell. And all of a sudden they're selling $300 flannel shirts at big department stores to, to key into this. There was also... I don't know. It was weird. I mean, I kept on seeing all these journalists would come to Seattle and they, I'd see the articles and a lot of them were, you know, completely ridiculous from the point of view of somebody actually lived there. I mean, you know, you'd read like, um, I can't remember, some French journal had this big article called Latitude, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> and, you know, you read the article it was like you couldn't walk down you couldn't walk down Broadway and Capitol Hill without being accosted every three steps by somebody who wanted to force you to buy heroin from them or something like that. It was just ridiculous. Did they offer you? Because I, I never was approached by drug dealers. No, I'm I was kind of offended. Neither, neither was I. I mean, <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous, but it was this kind of you know, world treading people. Super Bowl. Here's the next scene. I mean, a little bit. I've been in Detroit now since 2004, and Detroit wasn't anything as big as the Seattle grunge scene, but Detroit has also been, you know, you know, rebuilding after all the ruins. And so it's gotten a certain amount of what we call ruin porn and stuff. And we had for a while, you know, international journalists coming here also. So I like feel like I lived through something like that in Seattle and again in Detroit. And often it doesn't have very accurate it's very sensation of what it's actually like to live in the city you're in. So I don't know. Well, I just remember in the U district, you know, I am one day I'm looking at my Alice in Chains CD and in the back, they've got a little address for their fan club. Yeah. I'm looking at it's like a PO box thing, but it wasn't like the post office. It was like a private mailbox service. I look at it like, Oh my God, that's just around the corner from me. Yeah. To me, they felt, you know, things felt that accessible. You know, know, I mean, I've always kicked my, one of the things I've always kicked myself for is that, um, there was a, you know, Nirvana was having a concert at Seattle Center, and I was thinking, should I buy a ticket? And I said, you know, and I think, well, you know, Seattle Center is kind of, they're too famous now. Seattle Center is too big. There's like 2,000 people there. It wouldn't be good like seeing a less known group in a club. So I didn't buy a ticket. And that turned out to be the last concert they ever performed before 
Kurt Cobain wow. killed himself. So I, you know, really re- lamented that I that I didn't go. But wow. You do. Yeah. You know, I, I think I, I like it more after the fact. You know, when all this was going on, I just didn't go out to you know live music in general. But yeah. I had a friend who loved the scene, and his wife didn't want to go to these concerts with him. So he said, "Hey, do you mm-hmm. want to go?" And it's only because he, you know, dragged me to these. Yeah. That I got to go to the Crocodile Cafe back in the day. And yeah. he was a big Posies fan. Mm-hmm. But I'd seen you know, whoever was playing with them, you know, Gas Huffer. And, yeah. You know, but we go to Rock Candy. Um, uh, do you remember Under the Rail? It was Under the Monorail. Yeah, Fifth I vaguely Avenue, remember I that one. Yeah, I remember that and, one. And when you look around now, these places are gone. Under the Rail's gone. Rock Candy's gone. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, you know, gentrification. I mean, I don't live in, it's been a long time since I live in Seattle, but I, re, I, I read all these things about how outrageous rents are right now. Oh, yeah. So, well, so one thing I hope is still there, and I'd have to check, but remember uh, Bulldog News on the app? Yeah, yeah, I remember that very well. Because did you read zines? Did you read funky film journals and stuff like that back in the day? Some of them, not that regularly, but, you know... I'd occasionally pick them up, and, you know. So it's. Do you remember one called? I think it was Jump Cut. Yeah, I remember. I think they had that there. Remember the first time I picked up something like that, and that's when I I think I first read somebody analyze a music video in a very scholarly way. Mm-hmm. Well, again, Although, it's, it's surprising how little of it there. How little? I mean, there's a lot of when something says something culturally, like you know, about like, you know, some Rihanna videos or Beyonce videos or Charles Gambino videos or WAP with Cardi B this year. I mean, you get a lot of analysis, but a lot of people don't analyze. I mean, there's a lot less. And when, in film departments, I mean, you know, a lot of people talk about mainstream films. A lot of people talk about underground films. A lot of people go on films with very few of my colleagues, of course, the nation write about music videos. And I, I mean, there are, there are few of enough of us that I think kind of know all of them, basically. Well, that was neat about the digital music video book you wrote. Wasn't that part of a series that does uh, well-defined subjects? Yeah, I mean, it's a whole. I wrote it for a whole series. So there's one like there's one on Disney movies. There's one on zombie movies. There's one on there's on all kinds of different things. But yeah, mm-hmm. I did. I mean, I just basically that one. I, I I mean, I wanted to write a music video. I've been writing articles, but somebody. An acquaintance of mine, a film studies professor, was saying, "Oh, I'm editing this new series. Give me a pitch." And so I pitched the music videos. They said, "Yeah," and so it happened. You know, the last time I was at SeaTac Airport in Seattle, I discovered they had a sub pop record store, and it was, it was pretty cool. Have you been there? No. Well, you know, of course, time. it's a, it's a little touristy, but boy, did they have a lot of content. And I don't know if they published this or if they just carried it. But these little, they're almost like little chapbooks, mini books, mm-hmm. where people are just writing about either an artist or like an album. Yeah. But just going in depth on that. Like, you know. Well, no, one, there is a bunch. There's, yeah, I'm sorry. No, I was ahead. just going to say, yeah. And I love the format that it was just, you know, one person's thought on, you know, almost this album that affected them so much. Yeah, no, there's a whole, well, there are several series. There's one series called 33 and a Third, you know, the, which was the old record. Okay. Patient Speed Old One Records. And there's like. 50 or 60 books now, and each one is just on one album by one artist. And a different That's version probably what I saw, yeah. Then there's another one called, you know, Why X Matters, like why Karen Carpenter matters, why the Ramones matter, et cetera, et cetera. 
And there are a couple others. I mean, there's been a uptick in publishing of that for music, for pop music, but there's been less of it for music videos than for pop music. Okay. Per se. Well, maybe that's a, a need now for the market that maybe they should start doing that too. Well, I mean, I'm, I, I have some, I, you know, I know some people who are editing some kind of academic book series about music, about music videos. And I have a couple of ideas to pitch them. I haven't done it yet because I'm busy with other things. I'm spending a lot of time. Writing about you know, it still has so much impact like 38 years later. It's I ran by flock of seagulls. Yeah. They're in that room with the mirrors and the two girls with the black trash bag dresses. Yeah, I remember that. And the camera's kind of moving around the room. Why is that so effective? It's so cheap. I don't know. There's still, I mean, if you, when I do, I mean, when I do my music videos class, which I do every several years at my university, there's, you know, I try to do the whole history and there's some, you know, there's some old ones, which are, you know, you can say this is the first one to do X, but it's also there. Some of them are still really good. I mean, the first music video ever showed on MTV when it started broadcasting in 1981 was um, Video Killed the Radio Star by the Buggles. Mm-hmm. And it's still, I mean, it's very low tech by today's standards, but it's still a really clever and smart video. It is. Remember when they show like the tubes? Yeah, they, they have these these go-go dancers dancing in test, test tubes and the members <laughs> of the band are wearing these kind of flashy, like Flash Gordon type of science fiction costumes and stuff. And they also well, one have cool the, thing about, a, yeah, early MTV would play videos that weren't necessarily top 40 hits. Well, they were very, I mean, they were, they didn't, but they made a lot of them, they made them for, and you know, the early MTV was very kind of narrow, like they were mm-hmm. basically were doing indie rock and British post-punk and stuff like that. It took them a few years to start showing hip hop or any other African-American music. And, yeah. you know, then for a while there was, I mean, they had, they may still exist on cable. They have cable stations where they just play one genre, like all having mm-hmm. all hair metal videos, you know, 24 seven or all rap videos, 24 seven or whatever. Right. And what was that one MTV headbangers ball? Yeah. There were a couple of things like that, but yeah. Is that kind of hard to think of now? Because well, heavy metal really dominated MTV for a while. I know, but I mean, there was, I mean, what, what's always true is that there's more stuff going on in pop music than gets mainstreamed and publicized. And that was especially true for MTV that they ignored whole genres and whole, you know, subcultures. And that's one reason why I think it's better that you have, you know, it's all on YouTube now because it's more access. If somebody tells you about it, you can look up and watch it for yourself. And I mean, there are all these bizarre, like, sub, sub, I don't know much about, which I sometimes read about it, so I'll check it out because because it's available, you know? I mean... Do you watch a lot of Ramstein videos? They're okay. I've never... They aren't... They aren't... You know, they're they're definitely doing provocative and interesting things. I, I don't love them, I have to say. Mm-hmm. As much as some, some other people. What I'm so taken with is the heavy metal bands in the 80s wouldn't touch half the subject matter that Ramstein mm-hmm. does. Yeah. And yet, it's so funny how in a couple decades... How you know um, a metal band can be so much more open to different mm-hmm. types of content in their videos? Well, that's happened in in general. I mean, we have the well, I don't know. We have this kind of culture split. I mean, it's like the culture's going one way. I mean, it's like just recently. Just I mean, this wasn't a video per se, though. He's done videos, but like so, Harry Styles, you know, appeared as a model in Vogue and wore a dress and one thing, and he got these right. like right wing talk show for. Twitter mm-hmm. people denouncing him for destroying masculinity or something like that. And then you have, 
you know, other people saying, oh, it's great. I'm on the, oh, it's great camp myself. But, you know, it's like, it's weird that, you know, you have a culture and you still have people saying, denouncing this and, you know, like the old white sentence, but then you have a, a lot of other people who say, oh, you know, you shrug your shoulders. Yeah, cool. You know, Harry's, you know, Harry loves the teenage girls who love him and he's willing to do all this stuff and he's kind of cool and, you know, he's ambiguous, sexually fluid, gender fluid, and then, well, that's cool. You know, I mean, that wouldn't have happened, couldn't have happened 30 years ago. No, but I'm sure Vogue welcomes the controversy. Yeah. Because let's face it, print magazines are struggling to stay relevant. I know, but it's not even that much. I mean, again, it seems like even the controversy. I mean, it seems like most, they have a big enough audience who will just, you know, not even see it as scandalous, just sort of give it, shrug of the shoulders. Yeah, that's cool. And it's kind of weird that we have these retro people, usually right wing politically, who are making mm-hmm. a big scandal of it. Like, oh my God, how are you? I mean, you know, yeah. it seems right. like so, they just seem like they're so out of it to me. But, you know, right. obviously there are millions of people who go along with those lines anyway. So who knows? Yeah, to me, that's such the minor thing. It's like, okay, well, whatever, that's cool. Yeah. To me, it's it's the fact that Vogue has caved into the cult of celebrity and has yeah. become just a celebrity publication. Well, that's, you know, when you talk about, like, exploitation movies now being done in by Hollywood because now they're being done on high budgets, it's the same thing. I mean, everything's, you know, it's hard to imagine. I mean, I don't know. Everything's amplified and at a higher volume now both good things and bad things, you know. It is. Well, we're going to jump on that into our final stretch, and it's going to start with Tarantino. But first, I just have to give you one more plug. In 1996, you wrote a book called Doom Patrols, which was named after... Is that a graphic novel or a comic book Named after... Well, it was a comic book series called Doom Patrol, which was... With no S. No, I added the S from my book. You added the S. The S wasn't in the original. And I mean, it's like it's an ongoing... It's been ongoing. I was talking about one particular run, which Grant Morrison, who's still, you know, 25 years later, one of the big names in, in mainstream comics, had written where he had sort of gone out on a limb before it became that common for people to go out on limbs. So, mm-hmm. And what strikes me is it's the one book you did uh, for Serpent's Tale high risk imprint so serpent's yeah. tail was a an english publisher and then well, high risk was their american yeah. kind of branch for kind of what was it, more avant-garde work yeah or? well i kind of got screwed over on that it's a sad story but i'm sorry no oh, i'm not I'll, dredging I'll, up a bad no 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 no, no, no. It's, i'll tell you what happened <laughs> basically i was really proud of this book i wanted to be with a non-academic press i knew people who knew people so we got introduced to their very cool editor for their neat for their North American branch, even though it's a British company. Got along with him really well. He was really enthusiastic at publishing this series. Um, literally the same week, so we went through all the production process, literally the same week the book actually came out, Serpent Sale had a major corporate reorganization. They fired my editor and shut down the North American branch. So as a result, they didn't even market wow. like it was advertised in the UK, but it was not even advertised at all in the US even. And so nobody knew about it for a couple of years. Wow. So that's what I mean by I got screwed by it because, you know, it was, it was a major disappointment because, I mean, as I said, the, the guy who was the editor-in-chief who they fired was, was great and had all these ideas of how to get publicity without money, without spending money and stuff like that. But nothing had it didn't happen. Wow. So I think it's so cool you're a part of that because back in the 90s, when I was, you know, especially going through the used bookstores or the, you know, university bookstore, yeah. That high-risk imprint really stood out, and I was always gravitating because those were like, I just had a hunger for these new well, thinkers. Well, really great. You know, I mean, 
Kathy Acker published a book about Kathy Sanders. Acker. Yeah. And I know you've written about her and you were a big fan of hers. I, Kathy Acker, I said, you know, well, there's a, there's a book just came out, um, which I'm in. Uh, Kathy Acker, I think, was a really major, important, brilliant writer. And she played the, you know, she had to play the game in terms of fame in order to get anywhere because she was writing these edgy, difficult books. And she, I think she was a brilliant and great writer. Um, you know, she passed in the late 90s and mm -hmm. she had breast cancer and died at age in the over 50s. So it's really kind of sad that she couldn't do more. I knew her a bit, so I didn't know her very well, but I met her a couple of times and we got along great. And I think she's a really important writer. And in recent years, people have been trying to do, there was a thing, a book just is coming. I'm actually going to a Zoom, you know, release party for this book called Kathy Acker in Seattle, which oh. she, she lived in Seattle for six months in the early eighties. And then she came to Seattle for like two weeks to do stuff at Coca Center in Contemporary Art. And that's when I met her. And that's when she, she, she had a workshop and, um, she chose one writer from the workshop to, you know, young writers who were, she did the workshop with to, to read with her. And the writer she chose was somebody who nobody had heard at the time, Kathleen Hanna, who's since mm. become famous. So now actually I'm in this, I mean, it's a small press book and I don't quite know the distribution, but I'm in this, now I'm in a book with Kathleen Hanna because we both have memoirs of accuracy, which has just come out or just about to come out. So nice. Well, just, a. Uh... Name drop a few others to put out something on high risk. I mean, William Burroughs, Diamanda Gallus, yeah. Gary Indiana, Cookie yeah. Mueller. I love that Cookie those are all Mueller. Great, those are all great people. Those are all great writers. And, you know, yeah. And but don't we, I mean, nowadays, you know, people blog and I think we miss out something. There's just something special about compiling someone's thoughts into print. Well, you know, again, that's one of the things where I feel they're both pluses and minuses. A lot of the stuff's become more accessible, though, you know, I mean, and that may make up for the fact that it seems less like a special event. I mean, there are pluses and minuses because on one hand, it seems less special because we're so, oh, so overwhelmed with so much stuff. On the other hand, certain things, I mean, it's like, you know, I've read articles of this. It's like if you, if, if there's like a gay teenager in a small town in rural Michigan or something, they have no friends and then nobody now because of the, that was true 30 years and now because of the internet, they can find communities of people who feel the same way they do and like the same things and have the same mm -hmm. interests. And sure. Stuff. So it's really helped a lot of people, I think. Sure. And I love reading a good self-published ebook where, you know, it's someone's story you would never, you know, re read from a major publisher. And I love the whole genre of just little kind of personal memoirs and maybe they're mm -hmm. not famous but somehow they do have an interesting story to tell well again there's much too much stuff to keep track of so i mean part of it is that nobody can say they really follow everything in any particular subgenre or field let alone in general but and 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 there's some loss from that but at the same time there's mm -hmm. a gain that more things are accessible so again i don't think you know i I don't think that new technology is a great thing or a horrible thing, or it's, you know, it's, it's obviously both. You just have to sort of look at both the pluses and the minuses and figure out ways to negotiate through it. Well, in these books you've published, have you always worked with an editor? Yeah, well, you know, I always, yeah, I mean, at academic presses, which are most of my books, except for Doom Patrols, are all academic presses. I always, there's always an editor, um, but, and you go through a process, but, 
you, I don't know. Mine aren't changed for I mean, I the way I write is that I read, you know, things, I write slowly, and part of that's because as I'm writing it, I rewrite over and over and over and over again. So by the time I get something I'm willing to like show to people or try to get published, it's pretty polished, and as a result, the changes tend to be not as great as with other people who may be faster than me at the expense of being a little rawer and therefore having to do more revision with an editor at a later stage. Because maybe, I don't know, you tell me what you think. Knowing you're going to, you know, write something for a blog as opposed to being published is just knowing that once it's printed, unless you do a reprint, that this is going to be, you know, locked in forever. Does that, you know, up your game well, a little bit when you write? No, I mean, I think it's, well, when I write, when I write, I haven't been doing as much blocking in recent years as I used to, but nonetheless, when I blog, I force myself to write much faster and therefore much less carefully and much more sloppily. Sometimes when I like what I wrote on, on the blog, I end up turning it into a chapter of a book, but then there's massive rewriting and it's very, very different. So, mm -hmm. you know, like okay. you mentioned, I wrote about Grace Jones's corporate cannibal video first on my blog, which anybody can still find for free. And then I rewrote it when I put it in a book. And I think the book form is better, but I mean, it was because I didn't, it was different between, I mean, I had this, the ideas were already there in the blog version, but I really reworked it really carefully and spent a lot of time on, you know, being sure when I published it for an act for a published mm -hmm. book as opposed to a blog. So there's both. Yeah. Now you do know I have a, a great love for Grace Jones. Yeah. I, I was buying her records in the late seventies when I was in high school. But this was yeah. during her disco phase before she went new wave and art rock and which I well, loved. Yeah, but, well um, I mean she had well, like I mean, I don't know, she's I wish I could see her live, but last yeah. time she was in Detroit, it was like $150 for a ticket, so I didn't go. Um, but you know what kills me is before, you know, she, I don't know, went Hollywood, let's say, maybe yeah. early, early 80s, when I had heard from someone that she had played this little gig down in Belltown in Seattle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what was that club that was considered the closest we had to kind of a new wave club? It was I'm down on sure. First Avenue, I think. I can't yeah, remember. I remember the Crocodile Cafe, but you probably mean something else. Yeah, this is like a live dance club kind of yeah. alternative. Um, maybe it was called Rex back then. I don't know. Before it changed know. over. But it's like those mythical things you think, oh, my God, you know, I would have done anything to have seen her in this yeah. small, intimate club. Sure. No, that's that's always, you know, I think one always has those regrets unless you're so hip the things that you actually get to see all those things. Right. And, but when you're talking about music videos, you know what I love about YouTube is when you find a video you never knew existed. And I remember, yeah. and I don't even think it was a video Grace Jones did. I think she appeared on a, like a show in Europe and yeah. this was her segment in the show, but it was a really nicely decorated set and, you mm -hmm. know, filmed without the audience in view. So it kind of yeah. felt like a video. Yeah, And I think, oh, my goodness, you know, back in the day, I would have killed to have found something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well. Yeah, do you ever discover stuff like that? Sometimes. I mean, usually it's stuff. I mean, I there are a lot of other things like fan videos or just live performance videos. I mostly look for like, you know, you know, directed music videos because, you know, they do a lot of it. But I mean, you know, I often find, you know, artists who I wouldn't have heard the music by if I didn't find the video first. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, with more mainstream stuff, it's sometimes, you know, I don't necessarily, 
There are artists who I appreciate the music a lot more because of the videos. If I just heard the music, which I might have anyway, it says, oh, this is okay, but I wouldn't have gotten obsessed with it or I wouldn't have really paid attention to it. And then when I see the videos, it's much more, you know, that somehow hooks me in more. That's, mm -hmm. you know, my, yeah. some, that's me. That's not everybody feels that way. Okay, we're going to go on the final stretch here and hopefully not make too many waves, but we're, we're going to get a little darker. We're going to get a, a little grittier. But, you know, you were in Seattle still when um, Reservoir Dogs came out in 92. Yeah. I mean, did you see that? Like, was that at the Seven Gables or the Varsity? Do you I remember what theater? No, I, I remember that they had a they had a screening at the. I mean, one of the blind screenings that didn't tell you in advance at the Seattle Film Festival at the Egyptian, and I didn't go. I wasn't going to the uh, Secret Festival that year, but I heard about it from people. That had so much buzz, didn't it? Yeah. And I didn't quite realize the impact at the time. I just knew that. Indie cinema was so in the air. We knew it existed, but he then became the, you know, the great hope of all indie filmmakers of, oh my God, I can do what he did. I can be discovered. But then yeah. there was this whole ripple effect and then clerks came out yeah. and then, then there came the whole rash of, oh, and then El Mariachi. Yeah. And that was the other big, oh my goodness, he made this for $7,000 and look, and you know, Hollywood discovered him. There was so something in the air in the 90s with all that. Yeah, sure. And, and there, was a, there was a freshness to it. But at the same time, then there was a ripple effect. And I think a lot of people thought, I can be like Tarantino and mimic well, his success if I go back and appropriate some of these um, exploitation well, themes and, and, yeah. and make them you know, palatable to a new audience. Well, I mean, there's a, when you say there's several kinds. Of, I mean, one ripple effect is that whenever anything succeeds, lots of people imitate it. So, mm -hmm. after Pulp Fiction, there were a lot of films by other directors which proved that just because you have, you know, gangsters who have witty dialogue doesn't mean that you're making a great film. And then after you know Blue Velvet came out, there were a lot of people saying, "Oh, tried to do David Lynch films. Oh, this is just super weird." But no, a lot of them were again completely lame. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard. You know. You set up a style that gets imitated, but, you know, the kind of flash of genius which makes it really work is not something you can quantify or imitate very, really. So you never know what's going to happen. Well, you mentioned Lynch, so we have to insert that, because that's the other thing in Seattle. Even yeah. though Twin Peaks was kind of phenomenon that first season throughout the country, yeah, you know, the Northwest was ground zero for that. Well, my last few years, I, I, was, I left Seattle in 2004, and, you know, the last four or five years after the first season of Twin Peaks, whenever people would visit me out of town, I'd take them to Snoqualmie Falls mm -hmm. so they could see, you know, the falls <laughs> and the lodge and the, and the Double R Diner and stuff like that. Yeah. And I remember just, um, there was the other show, uh, Northern Exposure, which took yeah. place in Alaska, but they did also shot that outside of Seattle. Yeah. I think up in Roslyn. Yeah, right. And there was just whole feel like, oh, Seattle's finally... You know, this area is becoming the big film community we always thought it would be. They're going to shoot lots of TV shows. And although several years later, then you have a big show like that hospital one where they don't actually yeah. film it in Seattle. Well, you know, a lot of that, again, I keep coming back to this, has to do with economics. I mean, this happened in the 21st century with Detroit for about six or seven years, maybe eight years, maybe five to eight years. I don't know exactly they, the Michigan, state of Michigan had this kind of incentive program where they give people tax write-offs to make movies in Detroit. 
So lots of people made movies in Detroit, which weren't even set in Detroit, but they were set. I mean, I remember there was some movie, it never even came out because, you know, something happened. But anyway, mm -hmm. like I was, when I was living in my neighborhood, I was living, this is like 2008, 2009, they were shooting a movie set in, in, in New Orleans, but it was being shot in Detroit. And one of the wow. places they were shooting was like two blocks from my house. So I could go <laughs> and see the stuff. And they're like putting all these things like these, beads over the trees in front of people's houses so it looked like in New Orleans during Mardi Gras but it was ridiculous but I mean you know where I live now I mean there's now a building mm -hmm. there but you I know they the were block. shooting the, th the third Harold and Kumar movie 3D Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas was being shot like a few blocks from my house because again this is like um, when but then they took the but then they took the tax incentives away because of, you know, it's all politics. And, and so, whereas they shoot other cities and, and they go in Detroit and pretend it was other cities. Now they shoot, when they want to pretend it's Detroit, they shoot it in other cities because it's all just where they, where they get the best financial deal. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And, but. Well, speaking of, um, so you were still in Seattle too when we had quite the uh, international event, which was a WTO. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of funny to think that was over 20 years ago. But yeah, it was. I remember, so I'm not even thinking about the riots, even though I remember I was working downtown when those were brewing. And I got to yeah. see some of that, you know, before nightfall. But um, yeah. it hit home the most because, you know, besides everyone thinks of the riots, but there are actually meetings going on. You know, there's a yeah. whole purpose for this. And yeah. um, Clinton was in town. He was there for all this. And I just remember uh, during his visit, I hope I'm remembering this right. Yeah. Um, he wanted to go to a church service. And, I, and I'm thinking with Hillary. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she was along. But so yeah. the church was like half a block from where I live. So I kind of oh. remember yeah. one day the street huh. being blocked off, helicopters yeah. overhead and... It's just kind of funny how Seattle during the '90s had this weird vibe to it. It's it still is. It's never really recovered. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I was reading about the, you know, Black Lives Matter protests this past summer in the high Seattle Capitol Hill in Seattle, and they had a liberated zone for a couple of weeks and stuff. So I don't know. There, yeah. But I mean, that's again, I don't know. I I avoided downtown because I didn't want to get caught up in it. But I was astonished to see that they just bring the cops in and start, you know, beating everybody up and stuff for no reason. Yeah. And I think that's also a moment when, you know, real life becomes more interesting than anything you could write, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think now, you know, the media in some cases is more enthralling than any fiction you can make up. And more than ever, fiction has to compete with the news and reality. Well, you know, one thing, a lot of science fiction writers have complained about in recent years is that they write something and then, you know, by the time it gets published, it's already actually happened. So they're not writing this, you know, if you're, you know, if you're doing near, near future science fiction, something like that. I mean, I don't know. I think, I still think people can invent weird stuff, which hasn't happened yet, but we'll, you know. Yes. Well, we're going to move on to something here. Um, although it's going to kill me to, if, was was Clinton in office in 99? I don't think he was. Yes, he was. Okay, that was right before then George W. came in in 2000. Was elected in 2000 and took office in January 20th, 20, 2001. Yeah. Okay, so probably was Clinton. Okay, I'm not losing it here. So no. we talk about 
um, you know, TV has uh, in some ways become even more influential than film. But I think in the past couple of decades, you know, there's been these you know, movie or these TV series that have really changed TV. One being yeah. Oz, the Men in Prison mm-hmm. film or a series, which I thought was, oh, my God, that blew me away. When I first saw it, that kind yeah. of violence on TV and then mm-hmm. Sopranos. Yeah. But the thing that really changed it for me, and I think this was early 2000s, was Nip Tuck. Mm-hmm. And even before American Horror Story, although you can yeah. see some of the beginnings of that. And I just think to me, that's been, you know, that's when, you know, Ryan Murphy and company really delved in and um, I think made a very artful show. It was a beautiful looking show, but really took mm-hmm. the gritty um, themes of exploitation cinema and cleaned them up a little bit and put them on cable yeah. TV. Well, well, what are your hard. thoughts on that? I never saw Nip and Tuck or read about it, but I mean, I don't actually watch that many TV series, partly because it seems too much of a commitment to watch something for hours and hours and hours and hours. But I you mean, watch I'm, music videos. That's why I watch music videos because it's only <laughs> three to five minutes long instead of hours and hours. You know, I mean, you I gotta mean, dig into some of these TV series. I mean, I, I mean, I, I watched a few of them and I read about a lot more. But I, you know, I don't know. I mean, again, remember, TV is different because we have, you know cable and online and it's very different from having a limited series on hbo or showtime like like the last twin peaks was than on having than having mm-hmm. something on you know. did you like that last season yeah i, I, I totally loved it i totally loved it so it didn't, it didn't tarnish the no first no david lynch is a pure genius and he's doing something different than he did with the earlier one but they're both great that's how i feel excellent well by the way did you ever go to fan conventions Oh, well, sometimes not very often. I, um, not very often. I mean, I find them interesting, but I almost rarely, I mean, basically it's too expensive to go to one if it's not in your city. And actually there was, I was going to go to this big science fiction convention in Detroit, but, um, it, and I was planning to go, but then basically something, it was an issue with my then partner. So I had to take care of the kids instead of for taking care of the kids so it couldn't go well in the past few years um some of the people from twin peaks have been showing up at like horror fan conventions and i remember i went to several yeah and i was always afraid to go up to the twin Mm -hmm. peaks tables because yeah man but you know how you you just don't want it to be tarnished for you or this the actors to not live up to your expectation well i i have a Wayne State in Detroit, who, when he, after he graduated, I think he got a master's degree um, in, in English at Wayne State and, or in journalism or something. Anyway, he's now a journalist, and what he does is he interviews, he does celebrity interviews. And, cool. And they go in various newspapers and other media, sometimes radio, but sometimes just like print. But he, but he always, he always writes about it, you know, so sometimes you just talk to him, you know, he was my 15 years ago, but it's like, like just last week he said, oh, I just interviewed can't even remember the name of the actor. The guy who played the evil mayor in the third season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, cool! Yeah, so right. He said, he, said, he said, "Oh, it was so great talking to him." And he goes, and you know, the guy obviously it's his most famous role, so he still does conventions and stuff like that. But oh yeah, if you, you know, if you so, do the convention circuit, hey. So so I so I often see these things that when you know whenever any celebrity, either because they're from local or because they're just coming around for a convention or something, 
gets interviewed by this former student of mine. It's kind of great to see that. Well, you would love the sci-fi conventions. They even yeah. have, you know, the big world con, which, you know, well, is mostly sci-fi writers, you know? No, I'd love to, I mean, I, I'd love to go to a world con. It's, you know, well, there was, <laughs> the time was closest a few years ago. It was in San Jose, California. So I theoretically could have gone, but it was, would have cost too much money. So I didn't. So a year and a half ago, I was at a Crypticon in Seattle. Yeah. And it was the third time I had seen like a Twin Peaks presence at one of these conventions. I thought, yeah. this is silly. So, you know, my favorite of that universe is the Fire Walk With Me movie mm-hmm. you know, based on Twin Peaks and the story yeah. of Laura Palmer. So they had Cheryl Lee, the actress who plays Laura yeah. Palmer. And I said, look, this is stupid. I've got to go up there. And it's the one and only time I've paid a celebrity mm-hmm. for an yeah. autograph because kind of on principle, I never did that. Yeah, sure. I said, I'm going to bite the bullet this time, you know, shell out the 45 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and get a picture taken with Cheryl Lee. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I would, a lot of them need that, you know, it supplements their income if they don't have loads and loads of roles. And stuff. You know, I think of that as kind of paying their Patreon account. Yeah, that's sort of like that. Yeah, I agree. Because just to keep going and doing what they do. But um, so back to, you know, um, Nip Tuck and just this whole, you know, pushing the envelope. I mean, when I first saw that show, it had to do with plastic surgery. And yeah. I thought they were doing real plastic surgery. The special effects were that good. Mm-hmm. But, but then when these things get to a point of, well, it's not just enough to show a nose job or a facelift. How can we top ourselves every episode with something yeah. more gory or outlandish or obscure and then even outside the surgery, how can we push our storyline with, you know, things that in the past we would only see in a grindhouse theater? Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, now, you know, American Horror Story pushes the envelope that yeah. same way. But now American Horror Story has its imitators. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, people yeah. want to be more like that. So at what point do we paint ourselves into a corner where we're so... Uh, we're so basing everything on shock value and not classic storytelling. Well, you know, I think this movies, the whole history of movies, there's always been two poles. One is narrative, the other is shock. And movies have, you know, ever since 1895, movies have gone back and forth between those two poles in in different combinations. And, you know, so, I mean, um, I have, you know, I deplore when things become so, you know, like, you know, this is really too much. Okay, they have to go over, go, you know, that becomes boring. But, you know, I'm always at least hopeful that there'll be um, at least sometimes that there'll be chance for doing something fresh. I mean, it's never impossible to invent something new, even if a lot of people don't do it. I mean, eventually it's going to happen. And so if I have this faith that it will eventually. But, you know, you may have to go Did through you... a lot of crap before you get to that. But, you know. What do you think of people taking exploitation? And turning it into more of an art film, because I I have a couple of thoughts. One is I'm all for art. I'm all for you know self-expression if they want to use those as tools. But at the yeah. same time, it, it, I just don't like it when somebody acts like they're being more clever than the original exploitation film that they're using. Well, again, we talked about that a little earlier. It's, I mean, it's true. There's a danger for too much self-consciousness, too much self-congratulatory. I'm doing this tongue-in-cheek, which somebody else 30 years ago did totally naively, and often there's a loss for that. Again, I, you know, all I can say is that 
bad things happen and good things can happen also. So there's like, you just have to look for a lot of stuff because you're right, a lot of time it'll just become like that. But there are other times where, you know, some of these things can lead to, you know, something new, something creative, something which really makes your brain work in a different way or look at a different thing. So you just have to suffer through all the crap in order to get to a few things that are, I mean, it's like, have you ever heard of Sturgeon's Law? Theodore no. Sturgeon. Theodore Sturgeon was a famous science fiction writer who wrote in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Right. And, heard of him. Okay. So once somebody asked, this, is, this has become known in the internet as Sturgeon's Law. Once somebody asked him, well, you know, you write science fiction and blah, 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 but isn't it true that 95% of science fiction is crap? And Sturgeon replied, 95% of anything is crap. <laughs> and he's right. I mean, you know, yeah. that's true of high art, low art. It's true of exploitation. It's true of... You know, mainstream entertainment is true of everything. So you just have to find that good 5%. I mean, against the right. background of the other stuff, you know? I mean, well, I, I was talking to someone the other day about, I can watch a movie and dislike things about it, but I can still find things to like. Yeah. And, we, and we live in such a society now with people leaving online reviews and knee-jerk reactions. It, you know, everything's either one star or 10 stars. They either love it or hate yeah. it. And I see so much less nuance of saying, I see, you know, you could say, well, I see what this director was going for. I don't yeah. think they totally succeeded, but I thought they were really effective doing this. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Well, again, I think that's always been the case. I mean, you know, it's not that people aren't saying more nuanced things, but often it gets drowned out by the number of people. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's, I have a complicated relation to like fan cultures. Because in very ways, but certain things are like I feel very fanish, but often when I see what the fans themselves say, either they're, I'm not fans of the same thing they're fans of, or I think they're going to, you know, I mean, I don't know exactly. I, I read about science fiction a lot and I'm definitely a fan. And often I think, oh, here's a weird, mind-blowing idea in this story, even if other parts of it are kind of boring. But the only thing the fans wanted to talk about is, A, it was plausible, B, it wasn't plausible. And that's, you know, so I sort of feel a lot, a lot is missing, but I think, you know, they're always something good. There will always be more than what other people, you know, the, as I said earlier, there's often more than what the artists themselves was putting into it. You know, something just synergy happens, something magical happens in, in works of art, which makes good ones really go in other dimensions, but there's no way to plan for that. And a lot of people won't, won't notice it. So, now, now, are those your kids in the background? Um, one of my, she's talking about my, I have two daughters who are 18 and 16. The 18 oh. year old lives with me. The 16 year old lives with her mother. So my, yes, my daughter is talking to her, her friend of hers on the phone right now. And that's what you're oh, in the background. So, so you are a father of two daughters, um, yeah. both grown up or almost grown up. How has how becoming a father changed your whole outlook on uh, film theory? I'm not sure I can say that in any direct way. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, being a good parent is like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm not sure I did it as well as I wish I could have. But, you know, I think it's, you know, I don't know. It's When you sit down with them, what are the movies you say, oh, girls, you got to watch this. I love this movie. They, different, they, I mean, they have different kind of tastes. So, like, my older daughter loves to watch stuff like American Horror Story. My younger daughter has some like Korean friends in school. And so she loves to watch Korean melodramas, which you get on like Netflix. Oh, those are fun. So, yeah. So, you know, they're diff all different. 
Are they like your go-to when you're researching? Like, you say, hey, what are the hot music videos right now? Actually, no, because um, neither of them really likes videos. They mostly just listen to the music, but, you know, on, on headphones instead of watching the videos. So neither mm-hmm. of them really like a music video fan, per se. They're often surprised when I, when I like somebody who is popular among their age group, but is not necessarily popular among older people. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to wrap up with one final thing. We could talk about exploitation forever, but mm-hmm. for another time, I, I think we got some of the basics. But one interesting thing in your resume, because you, you went to Yale, which yeah. I discovered Camille Paglia went there too. Yeah. Much well before you did. Yeah, no, I never met her. But I uh, read on your bio that you took classes uh, with Harold Bloom. Yes, he was a teacher of mine. I took a number, a lot of classes with him. I mean, and I think a lot of people, um, you know, the new generation doesn't realize what, you know, just how much influence he had as a literary critic. And well, you know, what are your memories was, of him? Um, he was very brilliant and singular and very self-absorbed, okay? So, I mean, I can say both good and bad things, but I valued studying under him, though I wouldn't say what anything I do has much to do with anything he ever did. But he seemed, exa- I mean, basically, what I found good about him was that he was very original, had his own take on everything, and didn't care about what anybody else thought about everything, basically. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's good to, I think it's probably good to know more about what's going on around you than he was willing to do. But on the other hand, I think there's something admirable about, you know, not just following the crowd, but, you know, sticking to your own guts. And also, I mean, you know, he would just, you know, his classes, I mean, I don't teach the way he did his classes. He would mostly, we'd have a text to read and he'd brilliantly freeze us. He had the text for two hours. And you know, it wasn't like conventional class, but I, I learned a lot from it, even regardless of what the particular works were, just by seeing how his mind worked. So, I mean, you know, there are negative things to be said about him as well, but I won't say them because, you know, I had a good experience. <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't call myself a disciple of his or a follower of his, but, you know, you just run into people who are kind of extraordinary and stand out, even if you don't want to do what they do. And that's how I mm-hmm. feel about Harold Bloom. Well, most memorable people, whether they're, you know, an academic or... You know, creator of some sort, but you know, to really make your mark and then leave something behind, you know, you create something new, yeah. or you show people how to look at something in a new way. And I know you've gone through different philosophical disciplines, you know, especially you know, when I first knew of you, and you know, uh, just reading about you know French philosophy yeah. and the philosophers that you know you you looked at. Um, what would you say you you have produced? You know all these influences you've had, and all these different people who you you've tried out. You know several of their ideas. You know what new idea do you think you're formulating? Well, I don't know whether whether I am. I mean, I don't consider myself a philosopher, though I like to read philosophers, and I've taken a lot from many philosophers. But you know, I mean, I mostly find when I write, I write best about. A pre-existing work, whether it's a literary text like a science fiction novel or a short story, or whether it's a movie or a video or whatever. I mean, I think it's a mutual pro- process. I mean, I had an interchange. I wrote something about a, a story by a science fiction writer who I know slightly. I've met a couple of times, and I sent her what I wrote about her story. She said, 
she liked it and she said, oh, wow, you know, I just wrote this story and, you know, it turns out to have all these theoretical implications related to philosophical things which I had no idea about. And I said, well, you know, it goes both ways because this story is so wild and imaginative and it has all this amazing, weird, crazy stuff I never would think of in a million years. And you thought of it and put it into a story, you know? So, um, mm -hmm. that's, so it goes both ways. And I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I try as, you know, I'm in a good position because I'm older and I've been around for a while. I've published a lot of books so I can sort of get away with writing what I really, just writing what I want. So it doesn't make it easy, but you know, that isn't true of everybody in academia because, mm -hmm. you know, you have certain, I mean, you know, I'm 66 years old, so I'll be, you know, I'm not going to retire for a while because my kids still have to go to college and stuff. But, um, you know, I sort of I'm freer than people are in other academic positions where their jobs are less secure, where they're not getting as much money or whatever, you know. Well, even though it's valuable to analyze films and other works of art, books, at a certain point, when do you just let go of your analytical mind and, and you're just a fan like the rest of us and just let go and just enjoy what you're watching? I think, I don't think it's an either or. I think I do both of those at the same time. I mean, I really don't think on one part I'm watching, you know, doing this analytic thing. I mean, I obviously react to something differently if I decide to write about it. But my first appreciation of anything is just, you know, I think the same way other people do as fans. I mean, you know, I recently say, oh, wow, you know, if I like it, I say, oh, wow, this blows me away in some way. If it doesn't, I put it aside and take up something else. I mean, you know, I don't, my trouble as a fan is that I tend to be fan of things, fanish towards things which nobody else likes. <laughs> so. You know, this last year has been sort of like a sci-fi political thriller. Yep. Uh, do you have hope going into the, these next few years? Uh, I'm not. I'm pretty pessimistic, though. I try to avoid falling into the, the black hole of it. But, you know, when, I don't know. The last four years have been horrific. I mean, I'm really relieved that we're about to be rid of Donald Trump because everything's done been so horrible and awful for this country and for people in particular and in general. I have no hope that it's going to be much better. I mean, we won't have the worst things, but we, so, I mean, I voted for Joe Biden because I needed to get rid of Trump. I don't think Joe Biden is at all imaginative or is going to do anything that really reforms things or really changes America in a way. So, I mean, I, I think with, with the climate crisis just getting worse and worse, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I've heard about in Seattle, they had, you know, you had these weeks when because of fires, you know, the sky was completely clouded over and stuff. Never happened mm -hmm. when I used to live there. I mean, it's just, I have yeah. friends, I have friends who recently retired and moved to Berkeley, California. And they said, for, they were always sure this is where they want to live the rest of their life. But now they're saying, well, after three summers in a row, when there was like four or five weeks, when the sky was so polluted that, you know, dangerous to go outside they're they're they kind of wonder and when they had to be always their house they never had to escape leave they had to always be ready because there was some possibility the fire would spread to where they live i mean you know so i don't know i mean i think the combination of economic inequality and climate disaster is just getting worse and worse and though i don't have much hope that we have a government i mean despite the improvement which is about to come i don't see that we have a government with sufficient imagination and will to actually deal with those problems. So I'm very pessimistic. I'm hoping 
I'll die before it gets really too horrible, but I'm not worried about my kids. You know, mm-hmm. when they get As a professor, seeing, you know, having the ability to teach directly to your students in the same room face to face. that Oh, I have been doing that this year because of COVID. I mean, you know, it's weird the last, since March, you know, for the end of that semester and then all this fall semester, I've been doing it entirely online. And so I don't really meet the students. I, you know, I videotape lectures or write things and they respond at their own time. Do you think that'll become the new normal for your profession? I don't know. I mean, you know, there are pluses and minuses. I mean, it's, I think a lot is lost by not being physically in the same space in the same classroom. On the other hand, there are some positive things like students who were too shy to ever talk in class are now, you know, when they can write on a bulletin board on their own speed, they, they I actually get more feedback on certain things as a result. So I try to see pluses as well as minuses, but it's not a great situation overall. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to wrap up and give you the last word. and. <laughs> What I especially love, uh, we talked earlier, is if you are working on a new book, just to give us a sneak peek on just whether it's a book or what you're writing right now, you know, what's what's on your mind creatively? Well, I have a book which I actually finished over a year ago, but won't come out until almost a year from now, because especially during the pandemic, publishing has been slowed down. But it's a book about science fiction. It's called Extreme Fabulations. It just looks at a number of science fiction novels and stories which have this weird and extreme scenarios, but which can actually tell us stuff about the world. And what I'm writing now, I'm working on more science fiction stuff, and I'm also, mostly I'm writing either in science fiction or in music videos. So I could list titles, but, you know, I'm not sure that would. There's lots of stuff. And you have a publisher lined up for the science fiction book? Well, the one coming out a year from now, it's now being processed, so. It's like going to copy editing, and that's Goldsmiths University Press in the UK. Um, Excellent. See, they love you in England. Well, so, I mean, I, I don't know. Some people do, some people don't. It's like, <laughs> it's like as I told you, I when I write science fiction things about science fiction works by living authors, sometimes they get to see them, and sometimes they say, "Oh, thank you. This is great. You really got it, what I was trying to say." And other times they say. Who is this person and why is he saying these stupid idiotic things about my books? And I had both reactions. And of course, the first one's gratifying, the second one's very disturbing, but you know, it's, it's inevitable when you're writing about stuff that living people are doing. You know? Well, I, I never try to be mean. I only write about things I like, but nonetheless, not every author is going to necessarily like what I write about and stuff. That's what I like about you. You hit hard, but you're not mean. You're not mean spirited. Well, you know, I try, I don't know, I don't. I don't like, you know, I don't see the point. I mean, I understand in political things, you have to criticize bad things happening, but I don't see like the science fiction novel, which I think is really crap. And there are ones, you know, obviously I don't write articles about how they're really crap. I just ignore them. You know, yeah. it's life is too short to spend time on that. Stuff like that. I'm too short. And what's that movie again? You said I had to watch oh, detention, detention. There's several films with that title. Unfortunately, detention 2011 directed by Joseph Kahn, K-A-H-N. Okay, I'll figure that out. I won't give you any homework, but but if you mm-hmm. want to, uh, take a glimpse at Nip Tuck. I would be so curious okay. to get well, your reaction. It's on my. Oh, I put it on my list. I mean, I I, have, I don't have you know the list is way too long at this point. But you know, I just, 
Well, I'm really glad we had a get, chance to get caught up today. We probably yeah, this is really nice. A couple decades too long, but mm -hmm. well, <laughs> if you're ever, ever back in Seattle, you know, we need to go back to Linda's Tavern and have a drink. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know when I'll be next in Seattle. It's been a while. I was last there in 2013, I think. So it's been a while since I've visited. Oh, my goodness. Well, it sounds like you've really established a, a nice home for yourself in Detroit. You think you're going to retire there? Who knows? I mean, I love Detroit in the summer. Detroit's a really interesting place, but I don't. I really don't like the winter. I mean, I really don't like cold winter. So, you know, aside from, if not for the fire, well, there, you know, I'd love to. So my fantasy is to retire to California, but there are two problems to that. One is that California is so unbelievably expensive, I may never be able to afford it. And the other is that, though they have great weather, now they're having this fire season every, every summer. It's really scary. So who knows? Oh, my God. Now, do you also have a website if people want to go to? Mostly it's my blog. It's my last name, www.shavero.com slash capital B blog. Yeah, I recommend going dig deep. You actually have excerpts from your uh, books on there, too. Well, as I said, I often write blog entries, and then several years later, I turn them into book chapters with massive rewriting, but you get a version of it, a delivery yeah. version. From it. Get a lot of freebies. Okay, his name... Stephen Shaviro, he is not only uh, the smartest man in the room, but he also has a big heart. So I really appreciate you being on the show, Stephen. Thank you. It was great talking with you, Kelly, and catching up after many years.